Our call to worship this morning is taken from Psalm 119, 41 to 48, which is in page 568 of your pew Bible, if you care to read along. 568. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love that I might meditate on your decrees. The Old Testament reading for today is found in Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. That's page 176 in your pew Bible. From a very um, nice-sounding passage called The Year for Canceling Debts. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to another Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt one of your people owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your people and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. Galatians 3, 1 through 16. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or believe what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it was really in vain? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by your observing the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations who bless 
All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on the on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, Whoever does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessings, blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me make an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. The gospel reading for this morning is found in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, saying, We are Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to anyone. How do you now tell us you shall be made free? Jesus answered him, saying, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever, but the Son abides forever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, then you are free indeed. I know you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works Abraham did. That's a whole lot of Bible reading from all over the place, isn't it? Hope you're not hungry. I've been wrestling with the question of what it means to be free. We live in an interesting and paradoxical time. Currently, in our world, more people are enslaved than in any other point in history. And we're deeply disconnected from that because of affluence and because of where we live by accident of geography. Don't argue the fine point with me and say, oh no, they're not slaves, they're employed. Let me put you to work for 14 to 16, 18 hours a day in a sweatshop with no breaks, hot, muggy conditions, 
and piecemeal work where you average a dollar a day in wages. Or let's be really generous on a worldwide pay scale and make it 12 or $15 a day. And at the end of a year or two of that, let's measure your, your standard of living and you tell me if you're a slave or if you're free. So let's... I don't want to politicize this. This isn't about the right coast or the left coast or the blue or the red states or about who you listen to, whether it be NPR or Hannity or whatever it is. It's not about that. The fact is more people are enslaved on our planet right now than at any other time in history. The sex slave trade is out of control. We never want to talk about that. How dare I even bring it up in a holy setting like this? And yet what compassion can we offer a world in which more and more young people are being abducted or taken advantage of? These are things that aren't happy. You read in my little blurb there, and you know it to be true from the news, whatever your source is, America's debt load has not gotten smaller in the last 15 years. Don't know if you're paying attention to that. It's increased dramatically. With the crisis that hit August 11th of 2008 and our economy taking a dive, a number of Americans went into conservation mode and began to pay off different things or began to save in ways they had never saved before. But we're tired of it. And Americans are again spending. And the average level of personal indebtedness is as high as it's ever been in history. There was a time when I could go to the airport just for the joy of watching a plane take off. They're now removing diapers from 95-year-old women in wheelchairs to check for explosives. Are we in the land of the free? Are you free? I'm here to say we, uh, this group here probably enjoys as high a level of freedom as anywhere in the world. We're truly, outrageously blessed. And if you don't know it, spend a little time reflecting on it and you will be thanking God profusely on even the worst days of your life. But the Bible has been ignored in so many ways. And our culture continues to become increasingly hostile to religion in general and Christianity in particular. I may be overly sensitive, and I've been meaning to try to take the time to find a media collage, but I'm guessing there is maybe one neutral or positive reference to clergy people in the media for every 20 or 30 negative ones. Don't you know? We're pedophiles, we're predators, we're homosexuals, we're uh, irrelevant, we're... Yeah, that's just a short list. And Christians are increasingly viewed as radical, irrational, undeserving of accommodation, 
fact, I just got a call this week from a non-Adventist, perhaps even non-Christian person, who was desperate to get a student into a particular program in our Fair Valley, a program hosted at CalArts. It's not a CalArts program, but it's hosted there, called Interspark. And she can't get her student in, even though he's already been, because he's refusing to participate in classes on Saturday, even though he's auditing the program. And they don't want him there. And it's federally funded. I'm going to invite Alan Reinach. You used to have him with some regularity back in Tom's day and even Rick's, I think. But I'm going to invite him back at some point this year just to share with us again what's happening in terms of religious liberty in our country and in our state and in our area, ways we can support one another. We live in a society in which disease is increasingly rampant and health care costs are rising. And it's complex and I don't want to pretend that I could understand it. I didn't major in economics, but I'm here to tell you that when oil prices, I, I know this much, when oil prices go up beyond the normal rate of inflation, when health care costs rise above the normal rate of inflation, the standard of life overall and the spending power of all of us is diminished. It's harder to get wage increases that keep up with inflation. It's harder for us to maintain a standard of living. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet many of you have experienced, if you did the analysis, an actual decrease in your earning power, your spending power, over the last decade. And if you roll that out for another three decades, you'll no longer be anywhere close to middle class. You'll be thoroughly lower class. And if you lower it a few more times or have a misfortune along the way, you'll definitely be at the poverty level. How free are really poor people who don't have a car or maybe only one that doesn't run well? How free? are really poor people when a crisis comes and they have to borrow something but they don't have the resources to pay anything back and the only interest rate they can get is 29% because they don't have the credit rating or the income. How free? And I've just been wrestling with these things and asking myself, I live in this, and do not misunderstand me, I live in this wonderful land of opportunity. I live in this wonderful land with laws that protect my right to be here Saturday as opposed to be there Sunday. I live in this wonderful land that will allow me to be a citizen here even if I choose Islam or no religion at all. I live in this wonderful land in which I am innocent until proven guilty even if the legal system isn't equally available to all, practically speaking. I live in a land with ideals that are greater than I am and a people who've thrived here. So do not misunderstand me this morning. I'm not, it's not a time to talk down America. It's a fabulous place. I was just explaining to somebody this morning, I live in Glendale, I live in heaven. Okay, summer's hit, so it's going to be a little closer to hell for a few months, but there, 
no cyclones, no hurricanes, no tornadoes. Oh yeah, we get the occasional earthquake. Fair trade-off, I think. We had a tsunami hit the coast of California. I think it did very little damage. We, we just live in a place where the weather's fantastic. No ice storms, no trees falling down from ice storms. You know, I lived in Minnesota for a period of time. I can tell you what cold is. 43 degrees isn't cold. 28 degrees isn't cold. We don't, we don't know cold. Okay, somebody from New York over there. Victor, he knows cold. But that's just a recent memory, and it will fade as time goes by. He'll be in California a couple years. He'll go back to visit New York, and he won't have any clue what he was missing. He'll think he can wear his light jacket, and he'll get off the plane, and he'll start layering up right in the airport there. 17 layers, and he'll walk to the taxi cab. Because he will have forgotten what other people put up with. The Bible gives us several areas of exploration for freedom. And while we can't do everything about the macroeconomic situation of our land, while we can't do a lot about uh, the situation in many places in terms of the way workers are treated and those kinds of things, I would urge you to adopt a social consciousness and to begin to think about ways in which we can partner with other organizations in the world, other entities, and the way we can support them in fighting uh, the global increase of slavery. But for us, for this morning, there are some practical pieces I want to throw at you. The first comes to us in Psalm 119, in the Wah section there. Notice how Psalm 119 is broken down and follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I barely remember the alphabet, let alone how to read Hebrew. I did not do particularly well in that class. Very difficult. I've wondered if I shouldn't go back and just take it just to prove to myself that I can do it. Uh, but I did that in Greek and it worked out fine. So um, long and short of it is, David is extolling the law of God. Extolling it. Praising it. Speaking of its power and its wonder. And I want to highlight one particular little piece of that for you because I think it's really uh, poignant and still very true. I will all, verse 44, I will always obey your law forever and ever. 45, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. There is this notion that the limitations God places on our lives in law are somehow a curbing of freedom. Isn't that the argument that Adam and Eve bought? Isn't that what the serpent said to Adam and Eve? Look, God's not giving you the full story. You're not going to die when you eat that fruit. Not only are you not going to die, but the shingles are going to fall out of your eyes. The scales are going to fall off of your eyes. You're going to see things you've never seen before. Boy, who doesn't want to do that? How many of you want to see things you've never seen before? Sign me up. How many of you want to go from blindness to sight? Sign me up. 
And I'll tell you what, you're going to be wise. How many of you want to be wise? Sign me up. You're going to know good from evil. Well, I'm not sure what evil is, but sign me up. They were persuaded that the limitations God had placed on them, this tree you can eat of, this tree you must not eat of, were not in their best interests. And all of us have been living that ever since. We are persuaded that the goodness God brings to our life is not in our best interest. We remain persuaded. Right? Two of you. I'll let the rest of you think about it another 10 seconds. Right? Much better. Why do I say we're persuaded that God's law is not in our best interest? Because we continue to reserve the right to kill. We continue to reserve the right to be out of control in our temperaments and tempers. We find it convenient, even appealing, even fueling our energies at times if we can hate. Boy, that gives us an energy, doesn't it? If we don't actually commit adultery, we certainly give ourselves freedom to lust. We find it ever so uncomfortable to realize that somebody has something that we don't, that we want. And we covet. You're all coveters. I know you are. I know that because I am too. We diminish ourselves in the goodness that God has brought to us. We want to find an excuse not to honor our father and our mother because absolutely none of them did perfect jobs. And how hard a standard that is to live with when we have our own children. We find ourselves constantly wanting to do our own thing. Sabbath isn't particularly convenient. The whole world has jettisoned it. No other gods before me. What does that mean anyway? And graven images? Don't be silly. I don't worship stone or wood. Really? Sure about that? You're not a materialist at heart? You don't think the greater reality is what you can see, touch, taste, and feel rather than the reality of the unseen? And David says, get to my point, David says by meditating on your law, by loving your law, by seeking your law, by implementing your law, by living your law, by taking your law into my heart and making it part of what I want and part of what I seek and part, what of, part of what I do, by walking in your precepts, I have found freedom. Because when you're not seeking to kill, it's a little harder to end up being killed. When you're not hating, you're not being eaten alive. 
from the inside out. When you're not committing sexual sin, you're free from not only uh, all kinds of potential um, YouTube and Yahoo and other reports, but you're saved from all kinds of uh, potential personal crises and diseases. When you're not lying, you're not lying to cover up your lies that you, you told in the first place. When you're honoring your parents, you're giving yourself the best chance of being honored yourself as a parent as you age. When you respect the law, you have the best chance for freedom, happiness, and survival. I'm talking about the law of God. Not some of the petty or irrational laws that are conceived by municipalities or states or even governments at times. I'm talking about the law of God. David loves the law and experiences it as something saving, which is a big contrast to how Paul sees it, which is what we read in our New Testament text. And let's go to that argument for just a minute because there's another tyranny that those of us who are religious have been subjected to. And that tyranny is the tyranny of the full effect of the law. Paul argues, and I, I won't take a lot of time with this because I know you're familiar with Paul's arguments on this. Paul argues succinctly that the law is what convicts us of sin. If there's no statute, there's no infraction, right? If you have a stretch of freeway in Nevada from one side to the other without a posted speed limit anywhere along the line and it's safe to go 160 miles an hour, is there any law that says you can't? No. No posting, no infraction. No law, no infraction. The law convicts us of our infractions. The law is a mirror that gets held up to our faces by which we're judged, and we quickly see that we have failed in every respect, especially when we go beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, which Jesus prescribes. The law is summarized not in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, but in love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. And then the law beyond that is an internal peace. You may say, I've never killed, but you've hated your brother. And if you've hated your brother, you've killed him already, Jesus said. You may not have ever committed adultery, but if you've looked after a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already, Jesus says. Why does he say these things? I wish he hadn't. But he's pointing to the impossibility of righteousness. That is to say yours or mine. He's pointing to the law, the mirror that convicts. And when we're convicted of sin and guilty of sin, we're eligible for one thing, the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is the separation from God, which results in what? Death. The wages of sin are death. So for Paul, the law isn't a good thing in this sense. It's a bad thing because it is what has risen us, what has been posted that has caused us to have failure, which is then what causes us to be guilty, which is then what causes us to earn the death in which we participate. Paul's question is, 
Are you saved by the prescriptions of law or are you saved by the God who by Abraham called him? And Abraham who by faith responded to that call. And Paul wants to say it's the latter. If you're going to be saved by keeping the law, he says, make sure you keep the whole thing and keep it always. Are there any highway patrol in the audience today? Okay then. I found my speedometer touched 80 today. It's a lovely thing for the pastor to be on time for Sabbath school. Guilty of breaking a law. Right? Now that's not a terribly... Uh, socially irresponsible example, but I make the point to say that if it weren't for the law, there wouldn't have been any doubt that that would have been acceptable. I don't wasn't convicted because I wasn't stopped, and I don't have a citation on that fact. But it doesn't change the fact that I sped this morning. And so Paul just wants to take all of this and say, see, until you've kept the law wholly and completely and perfectly, you have to fulfill it all and always. But if you want to be Abraham's model, if you want to go with that, it's a model of faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. righteousness. So Paul is going to argue that what we need is not freedom from sin per se, but freedom from law. Or the consequence of law which convicts us of sin. It's one and the same for him. And so by being freed from the law, we're being freed in Christ That is the model of Abraham because Jesus saves those who what? Believe, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever what? Believeth in him, believes in him, shall be saved. That's the Abraham model. It doesn't say God sent his son so that he could harvest all of those who had perfectly kept all of the law all the days of their lives. It says he came for those who believed. And that's what Paul calls us to. It's not diametrically opposed to David. The law is good and righteous and pure. And trust me when I tell you it's a form of fantastic freedom. You think Arnold Schwarzenegger is free right now? (laughs) Maria just filed for divorce. She's a Kennedy. Do you think she has the personal resources to make his life a little difficult over the next two years? That would be a fair evaluation. I heard Ralph say, I would say so, yes. Absolutely. That man is not free. He may be living in the land of the free in the home of the brave. That man may be well-moneyed and well-powered, but he is not free. Not right now. Won't be for a long time. 
keep the law, and there's a certain freedom to that. And then Paul is right. If we try on our own efforts or even with some kind of spiritual pattern of prayer or discipline to be perfect on our our behavioral front, it's a losing deal. You're never going to make it. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God. Jesus has. So there's freedom in Christ. Now, I haven't brought this text to, to bear in a reading, but the irony of that is that we become slaves to Christ in order to be free. That's the paradox. The paradox is that by aligning ourselves as servants of Christ, and, and that's an interesting term as well, because the text says that. We're servants of Christ, slaves to Christ in order to be free. But Jesus himself says, I no longer call you servants, but call you friends, right? So you have this wonderful grace that comes to us in these passages of Scripture, wonderful grace that moves us from ensnarement by the law and servitude to the law to freedom. Now, in a nutshell, this is the problem with any extreme form of law. This is the problem with Sharia law. This is the problem with fundamentalism in its, in its politically extreme forms. This is the problem with the ultra-right sect wings of any religious organization or group. You know, we want to be as far away from Waco as possible, right? But that's two steps away. One is shepherd's rod, and then it was an extreme form of shepherd's rod beyond that. And the whole complex got burned down. People died. That's the radicalism that we're not all very far away from. And it's a misunderstanding of of law and sometimes apocalyptic literature and other things too. It's an extremist form. That's not freedom. It's not being in Christ. It's not experiencing His grace or His love or His redemption. That's a problem. Do you hear me? Okay, it's getting time to a hungry time, so I'll try to get to the next two pieces here. Leviticus, no, Deuteronomy, excuse me, 15, talks about freedom from debt. I won't go into the social merits of the system that was established, nor the inherently problematic concept that the people of Israel had a standard for themselves and a different standard for everybody else. A non-Jew could be enslaved by a Jew. A non-Jew would have to pay uh, interest and or make payments even in a jubilee year to a Jew. That's inherently flawed in my view. There's something inherently problematic about that from the point of view of where I sit in history and my worldview. But if I roll it back a little bit and say God selected a people for a purpose and he gave them a law and he gave them a precept and he meant to bless them and by them bless all nations on earth, that he meant to incorporate the world and be salvific in the role that he took in calling Abraham, then I think we have something powerful to work with there. And this becomes an interesting question or model. What would happen in today's world if every seventh year were a jubilee? And don't tell me people would go, that the corporations would go bankrupt. That's absurd. 
It's absurd. What would happen if the United States took seriously the notion that as a nation they would only be lenders and not borrowers? Where would we be? Then we might be able to call ourselves a Christian nation. Right now we're a debtor's nation. I am not kidding when I tell you I've experienced enough debt in the course of my life to know that that is slavery. By borrowing to take care of sometimes a need, sometimes a wish, sometimes something silly, sometimes a mistake, sometimes an unforeseen challenge or problem, you know what you use credit for. By borrowing, I have limited my future options and my future freedoms. And if I've borrowed way too much, I've given up the freedom of a good credit rating, perhaps, or I've given up the freedom of a retirement, or I've given up the freedom of home ownership. Debt is a form of slavery. So my challenge, just in a nutshell, to all of us out of this passage would be to reread it and not hope for the freedom that comes in lottery winnings, not hope for the freedom that comes in saying, Bank of America is going to forgive me. It's coming up to seven years now. But coming to the freedom that says, I'm going to do by God's grace all that I can to be a faithful steward. Do you realize as hard as it is to pay a tithe, it's a form of freedom? Most people don't get it. When you can manage your money well enough to tithe, you can manage your money well enough to live. When you can manage your money well enough to tithe and bring your offerings to the storehouse, you can manage your money well enough to thrive, not just live. I'm calling myself, my family, all of us, you, to good stewardship as a form of freedom. Work on getting rid of that debt. Ask God to bless you. Take Him at His word. Start tithing. Start sharing your resources with organizations that deserve it, with our church budget, for crying out loud. We deserve it. You can look at our books anytime. There's nothing hidden. We take care of this place. We take care of you. It's a good investment. Freedom. Freedom comes because we've taken seriously the idea that neither a borrower nor lender we should be. It's scriptural. And yet it's not the way we're built. It's not the way our society is built. It's un-American not to be carrying thousands of dollars worth of debt, especially credit card debt. Our gospel reading, which is where I'd like to end up, is John 8. Now, the significance of this passage, if you recall, it's a dialogue between... Jesus and his opponents for the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in verse 31, Jesus says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. Now here's a form of freedom, isn't it? Know the truth that is in Jesus, and the truth will what? Oh, to be free comes back to that matrix illustration I've used before. Take the red pill, okay? Not the blue one. Take the red one. Know what freedom is, even if the reality is ugly around us. 
They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we will be set free? What a short memory those people had. 400 years they had been the slaves of the Egyptians. Well, not quite 400, but they'd certainly been the slaves of people before. God had delivered them. God had pulled them to a new place. And now they were saying, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus replied, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs forever. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, then you are free indeed. For I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you've got no room for my word. I'm only telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence and what you are doing from your father. Again, a little thick-headed, they responded, Abraham's our father. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. Now that's something, isn't it? What did Abraham do? Abraham believed and moved from Ur to the land that he would be given. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Freedom means believing. Freedom means stepping out of the place of a comfort zone to the land that we're going to be shown. Freedom means embracing what it is that God calls us to, not just what he prohibits us from. Freedom means a life in Christ. Loving Father, as citizens of two countries, great countries, we praise you and thank you and ask that your kingdom may increase in our hearts forever and ever. Amen.